The objective of Judaism is not simply to elevate ourselves spiritually, nor is it to introduce great spiritual or holy energy into the world. Instead, the objective is to work with ourselves and to elevate ourselves. That's why at this time of the year, when we focus on the darker periods of Jewish history, we read about such people as Pinchas and Yirmiyahu because they both teach us what it is that we should be focused on in terms of our spiritual development nowadays to make a viable difference to ourselves and to the world. So where we're going to find that is from the link between the Haftarah and the Parsha this week. When it comes to the Haftarahs of the three weeks that speak about misfortune before Tisha B'Av, the Shiva Denechemta and the seven weeks that speak about consolation after Tisha B'Av, the Rebbe has explained numerous times, even though these are parishes that are, the Haftarah is not designed to reflect the parasha, but rather to suit the time of year when they are read. Nonetheless, everything in Torah is absolutely precise, and therefore, move on, it's understood that even though these Haftaras are primarily suited to the calendar, not only are they re- related to the calendar time, but there's also a very important and precise link between each Haftarah and the parasha that it is paired with. Let's look at our example. So let's look at our parasha. We, we'll see an immediate connection between Yirmiyahu, which is the, 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 the first paragraph of Yirmiyahu, which is the which opens with a description of how Yirmiyahu became a prophet in the first place. The parasha Pinchas linked to Parashas Pinchas. What's the connection? So one of the links is the Midrash tells us that both Pinchas and Yirmiyahu came from families that included people who were not originally Jewish. Because Pinchas mi bas Putiel, Pinchas traced back to the daughter of Putiel who was Yisroi, who pitem, he fattened uh, calves for slaughter for idolatry. And Yirmiyahu is a descendant of Rochav, who of course was a Zoyna originally. Because of that, they both share something in common. That they were both derided by the Jewish community. Who are you and who do you think you are to, to take leadership positions in our community? And therefore, that's what Abish steps in at the beginning of the parasha to tell us, no, Pinchas doesn't trace back to Avodah Zorah. Rather, he is a grandson of Aaron HaKoyen. It says clearly in the beginning of the parasha, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKoyen. And likewise, the Torah also tells us about Yirmiyot, that he came from a good heritage, because it's different Yirmiyot ben Chilki Yohu, min ha-koyhanin that he was also from Koyhanin. So that would seem to be the link between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu, that they both have uh, shady backgrounds, and they are endorsed by Hashem. Now it's got to surely be more than that, right? It's clear, it can't just be that they have one common theme. And it's not even a theme. It's one common detail. That each of them was degraded by the Jewish people. Which is why in each case the Torah had to endorse them. We have to anticipate that the overarching way in which Pinchas served Eivishter and the way in which Yemiyahu did must somehow be similar and related. 
Ela, Shashaikh's Kolozoi, Boli de Bito Bigola, Befrat, Vinim Shutov Se. Whatever it is that they share as their thematic way of serving Hashem is expressed in this particular concept that they had shady background and needed to be endorsed. That's why that is the part that the Torah tells us, and then it's explained later on in Torah Shabal Peh. But we've got to find what is the deeper link between the Avoidah of Pinchas and of Yirmiyohu, and of course that's where we're going to learn the lesson. So let's try and understand what is the bigger theme that connects Yirmiyohu and Pinchas. That's question number one. Question number two, we must also, if we're considering and exploring what they each represent in the service of Hashem, we have to then ask, what is If this is a Haftarah, which is supposed to be on the theme of the three weeks of misfortune leading up to Tisha B'Av, why do we need to know all the details of how Yermiyahu becomes a Navi as part of that misfortune? Because Bechel Karishan Shal the first part of the Haftarah is Masupra Ketzet Nasim Yolanovi, a description of how Yomiyol became a prophet. He reports that Hashem said to him, Even before I formed you in the womb, I already knew you as a prophet. And I have appointed you to become a prophet to nations of the world. Then we have Valdiva Yomiyol, we have Yomiyol's commentary or response where he says I don't know how to be a prophet I'm, I'm young and then to that he responded don't discredit yourself as being young look I've appointed you over the nations of the world to uproot and to, to demolish to build and to plant and only later on in the Haftarah do we get to the point where he is given a prophecy specifically about the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, which is, of course, the theme of the three of the three weeks. That will come as a response to the bad behavior of the Jewish people, and and it will become very quickly like this almond sprouting. So that's the part that we understand would make the Saftarah part of the theme of the three weeks. But we have to understand, because it doesn't seem clear, what would the connection be between how Yomiyoho became a Novi and the fact that this is after of the three weeks. Okay, so what's the link between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu and their Avoida? What's the thematic connection? And why do we need to know as part of the message of the three weeks and misfortune how Yirmiyahu became a Novi? Okay, so let's go back to our first question, the linkage between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu. The first thing that we'll notice as being common to both Pinchas and Yirmiyahu and how they served Hashem is that we may shneem Pinchas and Yermiyahu took center stage at a time where the Jews were in a very poor spiritual space. At the time of Pinchas was the, the promiscuity of the Jews with the daughters of Moab, and as a result of that, the idolatry of Balpoer. Whereas in, in the time of Yermiyahu, it was primarily about Avodazar, the prophets of Baal, etc., you can get much more detail by reading the prophecies of Yemiyo, but what's common is they both came into their position of prominence against the backdrop of Jews who were in a bad spiritual way. 
And they both responded to that. Both Pinchas and Yirmiyahu aroused the Jews to do tshuva. Yirmiyahu did this by rebuke, verbally rebuking the people, which aroused them to do tshuva. And Pinchas, by taking action, as we well know, and killing Zimri and Cosby in a way that everybody realized that he did the right thing. And that got the Jews to do tshuva, as we'll see, it's actually in the words of the Pasuk. That's why when the Pasuk describes what happened with Pinchas, it says, that Hashem endorses Pinchas by saying, He stood up for my jealousy within the Jewish people, which seems to be an extra word, as many commentaries point out. Why does the Torah say, my jealousy within them? The Pasuk is hinting that this jealousy that Pinchas had on Hashem's behalf got into the heads and minds and hearts of the Jewish people, which aroused the Jewish people internally to do tshuva. And that's actually what brought them the kapora that they needed. So both Yirmiyahu and Pinchas deal with Jews at a poor spiritual state and bring them to tshuva. So that's the connection. The truth is, Surely that's not good enough as the big connection between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu. But if because this idea, to address Jews who are in a poor spiritual state and arouse them to do tshuva, is certainly not unique to only Pinchas and Yirmiyahu. Because there are so many people through the course of Jewish history who were Jewish leaders, especially the prophets, who had to do exactly that, to address, rebuke, and arouse the Jewish people to Teshuvah at a time when they were in a spiritually bad way. So that can't be the full link that makes Pinchas and Yirmiyahu unique. It's got to be more to it. So what is there? What is unique about the link between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu is not that they got the, the Jews to do tshuva, but how they got the, the Jews to do tshuva. So it's that how, it's that method that's going to be the primary focus we're going to discuss over here. What do Pinchas and Yirmiyahu do uniquely in getting to the hearts of the Jewish people? So in order to understand that, the first place we're going to start is by a comparison between the nature of Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu. Both had similar roles to rouse the Jews to Teshuvah before the Churban, yet their realities were completely different. And that will be our first insight. So the Gemara tells us what's the difference between Yirmiyahu and Yeshayah. That Yirmiyahu kulei Churbanah. All of Yirmiyahu's prophets, uh, prophecies are all about destruction of the Beis Hamidosh. And Yeshayahu, even though he also rebukes the Jewish people, but the bulk of his prophecies are about the comfort and the future and what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. So Yeshayahu primarily prophesizes the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash and the subsequent exile. Uh, sorry, whereas Yeshayahu, and especially the voice of Yeshayahu that we read at this time of the year, are all about the comfort and what's going to happen in the future and how we're going to be saved and how we're going to be consoled. You can actually see it in their names. Yeshayahu is showing Yeshua. The name Yeshayahu is associated with the word Yeshua, which means salvation. 
Whereas Yirmiyahu has inside his name the word Mar, which represents bitterness. Oi, or another association with Yirmiyahu's name, what the Gemara says, why was he named Yirmiyahu? Yirmiyahu means destruction. So Yirmiyahu is the prophet of destruction, and Yishayahu is the prophet of comfort. Not only that, you can actually see the distinction also between their voice in the timing when they prophesied. To quote the Frida Kerebe, lived already at a time where the Ebishter had distanced the Jewish people and hidden himself from them. Whereas Yishayo still lived at a time that there was tremendous divine revelation. And that's going to be a key difference between understanding Yeshaya versus Yirmiyahu or Moshe versus Pinchas and to explain the core of what makes Yirmiyahu and Pinchas so unique. The living through times of darkness and concealment. So it's natural that if Yirmiyahu is living in a time of distance and almost excommunication and darkness, naturally what will he speak about? Churban and Golus. Whereas, where is Yeshayo living in a time of light and a time of revelation? So what does he speak about? Light and comfort and salvation. Yeshayo's prophecies also include many heavy rebukes of the Jewish people for their sins, right? The, the concept that even the donkey knows its owner, or the fact that the uh, rejects the their, their offerings, etc. We've seen many chapters. In fact, out of the three weeks of misfortune, the Haftar that is the most intense, Hichazon Yeshayo is the one we read before Tishabab, which is a Nevoah of Yeshayo. And nevertheless, nevertheless, Yeshayo is referred to in the Gemara as completely about comfort. Because the way of Yeshayo's rebuke was to inspire the people, believe it or not, to do tshuva. Because a big part of what he spoke about was, if you do tshuva, this is what's going to go right. Whereas Yemiyahu's entire approach was, His entire approach was to arouse the Jewish people by a sense of distance and concealment. With almost a threat that if you don't do tshuva, you can anticipate this is what's coming. So Yeshayo sounds almost like he's encouraging the people by if you do tshuva, look what you'll achieve. And, and Yermiyo, by if you don't do tshuva, look what's going to happen. And that's going to be our first insight into the key link between the unique approach of Pinchas to that of Yermiyo. Sha'af Pinchas Kiyumiyo, because what Pinchas did similar to Yumiyo is Pola because Pinchas achieved an awakening of the Jewish people not through inspiration, but rather through a harsh approach, the Dikhia Vehester approach, which is similar to Yumiyo, which we'll explain in greater detail as we learn further. But in order to get to what's unique about, now that we've seen what's unique about Yermio, let's understand better what's unique about Pinchas. Let's look at what the Ebrish just said about what Pinchas had achieved. 
So let's understand what the Abishta said. He says, the Abishta says, because what Pinchas did is he managed to divert my anger away from the Jewish people. How? Because he stood up with a jealousy on my behalf. And therefore, that's why I didn't destroy God for the Jewish people. And therefore, I'll take you to Nakadosh Baruch Hashem. Therefore, the Ebrister gives him a reward, unique reward, a covenant of peace, and not just for him, but for that he and all of his descendants forever would have the covenant of being Koyhanim. Now let's analyze that pasuk because Miloshna pasuk mashma. The wording of the pasuk indicates why. What's the main reason that Pinchas got this amazing? Gift from Hashem, this covenant of peace. Because he managed to divert the Abish's anger away from the Jewish people. Therefore, he deserves these rewards. Whereas the fact of how he diverted Hashem's anger, which is because he took up Hashem's jealousy, so to speak, on his behalf. That's like a detail, like a parenthetical statement. Which explains the mechanism. How he diverted Hashem's anger. But it sounds like the main thrust of the Pasuk is, Baruch Hashem, you were able to mitigate my anger, therefore I'm giving you this, this gift. That's not absolutely clear. Because the idea that Pinchas diverts Hashem's anger, and therefore the Jews are not harmed, that's not unique to Pinchas. not the only person who ever stopped Hashem from being angry, angry against the Jewish people. <laughs> Probably the best example of somebody who managed to divert David's anger from the Jews has to be Moshe because because he did it many times. As the Pasuk tells us. So what's the big deal about Pinchas? That he gets this unique reward, which we don't find Moshe getting, that you have this covenant of peace. And not only that, more than that, not only do we not find that Moshe is awarded with a covenant of peace or any other reward which will extend over generations, we find the exact opposite with Moshe. We actually find that the Dafka withheld this type of generational reward from Moshe. As we see later on in our parasha. Later in our parasha, Moshe turns to Hashem and he asks, Let the please appoint a successor to lead the Jewish people. And says Rashi there clearly, or Chazal tell us clearly, His intention was that his children should inherit his position. And Abishah didn't allow that. So it's the opposite of Pinchas. Pinchas didn't ask for anything for his children because he diverts Hashem's anger. This, all his children become koyhanim. Moshe, who's able to mitigate Hashem's anger multiple times, the eagle, the, the, the miraglim, etc. And nothing for his children. It's kind of rejected. And it was not transferred. His greatness was not transferred to his children. So therefore, we have to identify what is the primary difference between Pinchas and Moshe, who both appear to do the same thing, yet clearly are doing it in very different ways. And that again is going to take us back to the link between Pinchas and Yirmiyahu, and more importantly, to a lesson of how we're supposed to live our Judaism. 
So let's analyze. What are some of the differences between how Moshe serves the Ebishter and how Pinchas does, even in things where they appear to do the same type of thing? So we'll look at two major differences. Aleph, Eitzel Moshe. In Moshe's context, how did Moshe ever succeed in getting Hashem to forgive the Jews? He did so by davening to the Ebeshter. Therefore, he davened to the Ebeshter. Therefore, the Ebeshter made an executive decision to retract whatever was targeting the Jewish people. Mashenken itzel Pinchas. Pinchas takes a completely different approach. The way that Pinchas impacts What's going to happen to the Jewish people is Pinchas does something himself to represent Hashem's so-called jealousy. Especially as we already pointed out, he does it in such a way that the people are themselves aroused to do tshuva. So therefore, Pinchas doesn't go over everybody's heads and get an executive decision from Hashem through his prayers to forgive the Jewish people. Pinchas goes into the minds and hearts of the people, gets them to shift, and because they shift and do tshuva, therefore they're forgiven. Also, Moshe, we see, was willing to make major sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people, as we famously know when he says, If you're not willing to forgive the Jewish people, then remove me from your Sefer, which is a soul sacrifice. Because for Moshe Rabbeinu, the most valuable thing is, of course, to be part of Abishtha's world and in Hashem's Torah. Moshe is one with Torah, and he's willing to give that up, to sacrifice that on behalf of the Jewish people. Whereas Pinchas wasn't looking to sacrifice his neshama in any spiritual way, but rather put, literally put his life on the line. Literally risked his life. As we know that after he killed Zimri, so the tribe of Shimon said, you killed our Nasi, and they wanted to kill him, and it needed a whole miraculous intervention to save him. So Moshe risks his soul for the Jews, and Pinchas risks his physical life for the Jews. Now let's be clear, moving to Pashat, it's pretty, it's obvious. The fact that Moshe never risked his physical life for the Jewish people. It's not God forbid to suggest that Moshe would not have done so. There's no question. If Moshe needed to risk his life for the Jews, he would have absolutely done it. It's deeper than that. The fact that such an, uh, such an occasion never arose in Moshe's life is because his avoid as Hashem is not about physical risk to self. It's about spiritual risk as opposed to Pinchas. And there we're going to see the beginning of a very clear distinction between how Pinchas and Moshe Rabbeinu serve the Ebeshter and how they interact with the Jewish people. So, if we really want to get to the core of what distinguishes Moshe and Pinchas and how they serve Hashem, it's very simple. Moshe Rabbeinu's avoider is always top down, revealing something that's so powerful that it changes the reality. So, you expose a tremendous divine energy, and that changes the nature of reality here on earth. 
Pinchas is the exact opposite. You work to reconstitute the rea- reality of our world. You refine the lower reality, our reality. And then you elevate it towards Hashem. So Moshe superimposes godliness onto the world. And Pinchas reconfigures the world to align with godliness. That's why you see what's Moshe in a nutshell. Moshe Kibel. What's Moshe's entire purpose in this world? Yes, he took the Jews out of Egypt. That's to facilitate getting to Mount Sinai, as David told them at the burning bush. So what's his entire purpose? Kibel, to receive the Torah, to bring down from on high, down into this world. And then to then share that with others in a way of superimposing, bringing something greater than their reality into their reality. So therefore he teaches Torah to the Yidden. And that creates this incredible spiritual protection for them because the Torah is such a beautiful light that that light would naturally displace any darkness that may exist or may threaten the Jewish people. So Moshe's objective is that the intense divine light of the Torah Poel has the impact coming from its pristine source down into the world. That it, there's so much light, naturally the darkness disappears. Have we worked with the darkness? Have we transformed the darkness? Have we changed the darkness? No. We've displaced the darkness. That's Moshe's approach. Bombard the world with so much light that darkness disintegrates. Pinchas takes the exact opposite approach. He works with the people who live in the darkness and invokes from them a sense of tshuva, which is shvira That means that they dismantle the darkness that they live in. They don't just blast it with tremendous light and it gets scattered. They transform, they break it down, and then create a U-turn, to reconnect what was previously stuck in the world of darkness, now with godliness. Okay, that's a description of Moshe compared to Pinchas in terms of the impact on the world and on the Jewish people. We also see a similar distinction in terms of their own self-development. As we've already noted, Moshe's primary way of serving Hashem was in the world of the Neshama. Pinchas, his primary way of serving Hashem was in the realm of the very physical. So, when you're working in a realm of exposing great divine energy, that's something that speaks the language of the Neshama. It's primarily relevant to the Neshama because the Neshama appreciates great divine light. But it doesn't really get into the reality of the physical body because the physical body doesn't appreciate that light. Needless to say, of course, the Neshama will have an impact on the Guf. But it doesn't actually transform the body to now be receptive to what the Neshama has to offer. Whereas if you go from the Pinchas approach, if your avoider is to try and elevate, then your primary workspace is in the physical and in the body. To work with the lower reality until it becomes refined and elevated and transformed and completely um, moved to a different reality. 
And by the way, that also illustrates, by the way, one of the one of the connections between Pinchas and Eliyahu, as we well know, that Pinchas and Eliyahu are one and the same person, different times in history. Because Hasidus explains that one of the distinguishing factors about Eliyahu and Novi Zavoida is very much about elevating from the bottom up. That's why if you take Eliyahu and Novi's name, it has the Gematria value of 52, which links to the Shem Ban, the name of Godliness associated with working with the physical or the lowly world and elevating it, which incidentally is why Elio is that one unique person whose body goes up to heaven because that's exactly what he's about, taking the physical and elevating it to have the greatest connection to the spiritual or to the holy. So what do we have now? We've got the idea that Moshe Rabbeinu is primarily working from the top down, Pinchas from the bottom up, and therefore, that helps us to understand the two distinctions we earlier drew between how Moshe serves Hashem and how Pinchas does, or how they engage with the Jewish people. How did Moshe get forgiveness for the Jews? By davening. And therefore, Paul that had the impact that Abisha would remove whatever threat or decree was leveled against the Jewish people, but a so-called executive decision from on high. Whereas Pinchas, in order to achieve the same result, had to do something of his own work. And his own work had to influence the Jewish people that they should actually do tshuva. And that's that is exactly aligned with Pinchas and his approach, which is you elevate the world from the bottom up. Secondly, we noted earlier that Moshe's primary sacrifice was the willingness to say, take me out of your Torah, which is a soul sacrifice. The sacrifice was to literally sacrifice his life that maybe the people would have killed him. Incidentally, that's why the Zohar tells us that Pinchas actually corrected what Nadav and Avihu had done wrong. What was Nadam and Avihu's problem? Nadam and Avihu reached a state of the spiritual rapture where the Neshama was so caught up in godliness with complete, absolutely no consideration for the body or trying to include the body in the experience. And therefore, what happened to them was the Neshama was, so to speak, burnt out of their bodies, as Rashi says, these two uh, streams of fire came through their nostrils, and their bodies were completely untouched. So they had ignored the body's role in serving Hashem. When Pinchas was willing to put his body on the line, his physical life on the line in order to serve Hashem, that corrected what Nadav and Avihu had missed. So now we've got two different ways of serving the Ebeshter, Moshe Rabbeinu, which is bringing all the greatness from on high, Pinchas, which is work with the world until it is ready to connect to on high. They actually have a practical difference in how things play out. Let's see what those differences are. Any time that there is an avoider, which is all about introducing great, powerful energy into the space, so from on high, down below, because you're generating, radiating tremendous light and energy. So what happens in the time of engagement? So you're generating, you're shining this light. At that time, the lower reality is completely bathed in light, immersed in light. 
But the reality is that the lower entity doesn't actually change and refine itself. So therefore you're talking, it's quite likely, as soon as you turn off that light and that energy stream, what do you have? You have a lowly reality that is as lowly as it was before because it was just enjoying an external influence. When the external influence is gone, when the inspiration wears, wears off, it's back to itself. And you see that in practice. Look what happened at Matan Torah, which is a Moshe-like engagement. The Ebershe reveals himself temporarily. At the time of Matan Torah, it was such a compelling reality of godliness that the Yetzirah ceased. But when all the lights and sound were over, the Jews were able to slip back into a bad space, so bad that they could make an Egel Azov, which was so powerful that it could reintroduce all of the Yetzirah that they had lost at the time of Matan Torah. Because when you superimpose energy onto a space, it only affects the space as long as you're superimposing the energy. But when you're working from the bottom up, then the lower reality shifts, changes, and is refined, and that has a long-term effect. So therefore, Pinchas, an influence that he had to bring atonement to the Jewish people, is not temporary. It actually has longevity. As the Sifri points out, that he atoned for the Jewish people, says the Sifri, till today, that Kapara that Pinchas introduced hasn't weakened, hasn't shifted, hasn't been deflected. But it stands in place, bringing atonement to the Jewish people, and will continue to do so until the time of Tchias HaMesim. Why? Because he didn't superimpose energy onto the people or onto the space. He shifted the people and the space. And that explains why Pinchas is the one who got a generation's long reward and brocha. Because, as we've now realized, the way that Pinchas was able to deflect Hashem's anger from the Jewish people was so impactful that it never will expire. So you can imagine that the reward he gets from the Ebeshter suits his efforts. His impact on the Jews to shift them permanently brings about a reward of connection to Hashem that is permanent. Now, now that we have these insights, we can understand the link between Pinchas and the Parsha and Yirmiyahu in the Haftarah at a far deeper level. It's not just simply that they both dealt with people when they were in a difficult place and they arose, aroused them to tshuva. Right at the beginning we pointed out we said what's the big difference between Yirmiyo and Yishayo who seem to be so similar as, as prophets and then you realize they're really not. It's as the Fidik Rebbe said Yirmiyo lived at a time where there's like the sense of arm's distance from Hashem and it's a time of concealment. Whereas Yishayo lived at a time there was great divine revelation. That is the natural reason why you would have two different kinds of avoida. An avoida that stems from on high, from the place of light, and then impacts into the world, versus an avoida that starts within the world and tries to draw the world towards the light. 
Whenever you have a voida that starts from on high, that must mean that there is a lot of revealed energy and light. That's where this, the process is starting from, which is mitzad neshama. That means that the neshama is taking the lead over here. The neshama is speaking loudly enough that the body has to listen. Generally speaking, that would represent how Jews lived in the time of the Beis Hamikdash, which is a time of clear, obvious, divine revelation. Whereas, if you're working from the bottom upwards, then you must be working in a reality where you're starting in the lower realm. You're starting in the place that is dark and concealed and distant. If we're talking in human personal terms, that's not speaking the language of the neshama, working in the, in the reality of the neshama. That's working with the body, working with the animal soul, trying to work with the rest of the world to transform it. Which in more general terms represents how we serve Hashem during the time of Golos, during the time when the Beis Hamikdash is destroyed. Where the primary focus is that we shouldn't become overwhelmed or distracted or disheartened because of the difficulty and darkness of Golos. In fact, to the contrary, not only should we not be overwhelmed by the darkness, but we should be transforming the darkness into light. And that explains a key part of the link between Pinchas and Yermio. They both come from backgrounds that are a bit shady. They're members of their family who are not from Jewish origin. And as we mentioned, that's why the Jews actually degraded them. Who are you? Why, why are you telling us what to do? Because in that detail, of the, which is the detail that we saw most obviously in Midrash Chazal, it actually exposes for us that encapsulates everything about their avoider, which is you start at the bottom and you work your way up. Firstly, starting with themselves. They had to tackle their own uh, lowly legacy. Coming from so-called outsider families. That would then translate into how they impacted their immediate surroundings and the world at large. Firstly, they had to ignore the fact that everybody was demeaning towards them. And then to the contrary, they have to become the catalyst that those same Jews who thought less of them should now be inspired by them in order to do tshuva. So if we were dealing with an approach, a Yeshayo approach, a Moshe Rabbeinu approach, which is about radiating tremendous light from the highest realms into the world, the, the power of light can only influence an area that is not opposed to the light. But if there is a reality that is so lowly that it actually opposes or obstructs light, there is no way for the light to benefit that reality. The only thing it could do is break it, but it can't benefit and certainly can't change it. So therefore, when you take the approach of Pinchas or Yermiyahu, which is to work with the world, work with a lowly reality, until eventually you transform it, so that you refine and you elevate that which was by definition so stuck, dark and low, 
Then you can even take a reality that is so lowly that it is dis- dismissive of Kedusha, demeaning to Kedusha. And you can turn it to Kedusha. You can have such an impact on that reality till you can transform it into light. And that's the uniqueness of Pinchas and Yirmiyahu. They represent that Avoida where you work within the realm of a difficult, dark, distant world until you change it to become a world of light and holiness and connection. And that's got a practical lesson for us. There are some Jewish people who their entire spiritual focus is on Neshama-based activities. Davening, learning Torah, that's their world. And they don't really get involved in anything which takes them out into the lowly world to try and connect and transform the physical and the dark and the, the body-oriented to also be connected to Hashem. Or perhaps you could even see a similar theme in a, in a broader sense. Let's say you could have a person who is very focused on every area of the avoid. Not just to ensure that their davening and their Torah learning is as it should be. But even works on their own physical self and their physical surroundings to be connected to Hashem as well. But they stay very much in their own space. Without trying to involve themselves in other people or in the world at large to try and have an influence. As the expression goes. So Yeshle Das, what we are supposed to learn from Pinchas and Yermio is, This is not a sustainable way to serve the Ebishter. Yes, of course, as long as the person is completely in that world, davening, learning, looking after their spirituality, the person will feel very elevated and inspired. But what's going to happen afterwards? When the person does, because it's inevitable, have to engage with something out there in the world. Not only will the person not have the wherewithal to be able to transform that to be something holy. It's actually possible that that world out there will now become a threat and will actually drag the person down because they don't have the tools to work with that world or even to defend themselves against that world because they've lived, so to speak, in a cocoon. And likewise, just generally speaking about anything that is outside of the realm of absolute pure holiness. As long as a person's in their own space, they're good, they're fine, they're healthy, they're spiritually on track. But if there's something that has to schlep them out into the, into the outside world, and it's inevitable, it is going to happen. It is quite possible that that engagement will completely suck the person down, and it happens all the time in communities that try to isolate themselves completely from the world in the hope that the world will not infect their communities. As soon as there's a breach, Therefore, the expectation of, from a Jewish person is that together with all the personal, internal, spiritual work that we do based on our neshamas, we also have to have an avoider that engages the world out there, even the lowest, darkest parts of the world, to ensure that that part of the world becomes part of the team, that it comes on board to be a, con- a conduit for godliness in the world. 
And that happens to be a great insight into why we read these Haftaris and this parasha and these messages, Dafka at the time of the Bein HaMetzorim. Because what's Bein HaMetzorim? It's about Golos, right? Golos is darkness and distance. What's the reason they wish to cast us off into Golos? Not that we should suffer, not that we should be distant, that we should be able to impact the world and take the Golos realities and eventually turn them around from darkness into light. That's what we have to do. But a person could argue how? Where do we have the wherewithal? The world right now is so misguided, so dark. How are we actually going to have an impact? Especially, you're not only telling me I should not be afraid of the darkness of the world. You're telling me I should turn the whole story around. Turn the darkest, hardest, saddest time of Jewish history into a time of celebration. How? How do you want me to do that? And we get the answer to that in the very first after that we read in the in the period of the three weeks. Where the Haftarah before talks about the negativity, first tells us about the nature of who the Navi is and how he became the Navi. That is Ben Chilkiomina Kehanim Goyme, that he is a descendant of Kehanim. And then and then we get to hear his story. How he was also afraid. We're afraid of tackling the world. Yermiyahu was afraid of going to preach to the Goyim. To which said, Don't be afraid because I am absolutely with you. Davisha says, I am with you, and therefore I give you every bit of resource and energy that you need to influence the, the rest of the world and all the great uh, kingdoms and to transform them. And that's not just a story about Yermiyo, it's the story of each of us as individuals. Regardless of how dark and deep and dark the, the Golos is. The story of Yermiyo is to tell us that just as Yermiyo was empowered to be Hashem's prophet to transform the world, we each are empowered by Hashem to transform our piece of the world. And even on a very personal level, we know that the Neshama coming into this world is literally like Golos. <clears throat> As the Friedrich Rebbe once explained, it's like being locked in that solitary confinement cell. For the Neshama to be stuck in a body is a terrible imprisonment. And exactly the same theme that we see with Yirmiyahu and our general impact on the world, it applies on a very personal level in our own personal Spiritual battles. Our neshama enters from its pristine point of origin into the three realities of misfortune. Not the three weeks. The three spiritual realms. We're already in the world of Bria, even though it's a very spiritual place. There's already the first kernel of the possibility of separateness and independence and therefore negativity. The neshama, as it's being sent down into this world, becomes terribly afraid. 
How will this neshama ever be able to achieve its mission to transform and do mitzvahs and, and make an impact on the world in such a dark place? Therefore, there's a lesson that is imparted to the neshama right at the beginning of the journey. The first Shabbos, the first Haftarah of the three misfortunes. What are we told? Debesha says, before I even formed you in the womb, I already knew who you are and what you're capable of. And even before you left the womb, I already designated you. I made you as a prophet to the goyim. Meaning, Don't, as a neshama coming into this world, as a Jew living in this world, be afraid of your mission, which is to impact the goyim, impact the outside world. First and foremost, to influence and transform the internal goy, like the famous story of Reb Munkus and Alter Rebbe, to transform our world and the space that we live in. We shouldn't be afraid. Why? Because Aleph number one, even before we were formed in the womb, Hashem knew who we were and what we would need to do and how we're going to do it. Invested in us a holy soul, which is literally a piece of himself. The root of our neshama is higher than the root of the world in which the neshama is now living. Even before creation, before you took on a form, Number two, designated us before we left the womb. Not only do we have some deep, deeply embedded neshama that is so powerful, but they should designated us, suited us up for a particular mission. Even while the child is still in the womb, there's already this awakening preparation for the person to be able to take on the world. Why? Because what happens when a person is still in the womb? Because we get taught the entire Torah while we're still in the womb. Even though an, a, a malach comes along just before birth, and causes the person to forget the whole Torah. That forgetting is only what's, what's uh, perceptible, what is conscious. But deeply in the subconscious of the person, the entire Torah lives inside the person and will never leave. And that empowers the person. That even when a person is here in this lowly world of ours, the person could learn Torah and it will reconnect them to how they learned Torah in that pristine state before they were born, still in the womb. Now to Enes and Neshama, the Neshama will still complain, right, I am an Nefesh Erekis, and I was taught the whole Torah, and I was empowered. But lo yadati daber kinara noichi, to paraphrase Yermio, he says, I don't know how to speak, I'm young. In other words, yes, of course you're right, somewhere deep inside my spiritual arsenal, I have all the tools that I need. But look at me in practice, the reality of my life. I'm a youth, I have no influence, I have no power. If you're talking the language of the neshama, the deeper reality, yeah, of course, at that level and a neshama level, I have all the resources I need. I don't have to be afraid of anything. 
don't downgrade yourself. Wherever I've sent you, you should go. And don't be afraid of them, those powers out there that you feel you can't overwhelm, because I am really with you. Not only do you have an Hashemah, which is already part of God. And don't only, you you don't only have the power of having been trained by a Malach before birth to know the whole Torah. Assurance is that even after all of that is over, when you're no longer in that beautiful space, you're now in the world, in the rat race. Your Nesham is now stuck in a body, and that body is stuck in Golos. Nebuchadnezzar says it's in that environment, Yirmiyahu, who's prophesying in a place of the I'm completely with you. So that you could achieve your shlichas to go wherever I will send you. To have an impact on nations and on kingdoms. And in both directions. You'll be able to have an impact in removing the negative. To destroy, uproot, demolish, get rid of. And you'll also be able to produce positive impact, like David tells him, to build and to plant. Here comes the firm part. The warning that David gives him is a warning to all of us that don't be afraid of all of those beings forces, nations, whatever you want to call them, lest I make you become vulnerable before them. Meaning, don't convince yourself that you can just protect yourself spiritually. I have taken care of me. But I'm not getting my hands dirty with things related to the world because I'm young, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not qualified. The fact that you find that your neshama is now occupying a body and is twinned with a nefesh abahamis in a physical world that is in a state of golos, that in itself should be an indication that the reality of the world is relevant to you. So if you want to ensure that you are immune to any vulnerability to the world, the only way to do it is by not being afraid. Not to be afraid to impact the world to become Hashem's home. When we take this leaf out of Pinchas and Yomiyahu's book to work from the bottom up, to recognize that we have the wherewithal and we have the Ebishter with us and therefore we can succeed and our responsibility is not only to ourselves but it's to the entire world. When we take that approach, We'll have very soon Pinchas in his guise as Eliyahu announcing the Geula and Mashiach will then completely redeem us in the absolute Geula of all Geulas that should happen literally now Mamash.